Hey, my name is Ariel Garten, and this is the One Mind Meditation Podcast, coming to you from Toronto, Canada. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and I'm your host. And this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and health. Today, we're featuring my interview with Ariel Garten, one of the creators of Muse, the brain-sensing headband. And before we jump into the show, I wanted to let you know that One Mind is a proud member of the Podcastica Podcast Network. I encourage you to head on over to podcastica.com and see some of the other great shows in the network. Back to today's show. Ariel Garten has been a fashion designer, a psychotherapist, a neuroscientist, and now she's a technology entrepreneur who's bringing her diverse talents to bear on changing the world through meditation. She and her team at Interaction Technologies, where she's a co-founder, have developed an extraordinary piece of brain-controlled technology called Muse, the brain-sensing headband. And if the, that terminology, brain-controlled technology, throws you, don't worry. We're going to get into it in this interview. Now, I'm not going to give away the story here and tell you how the Muse headset teaches you how to meditate, because it does. You need to listen to the show to hear all about that. But what I can tell you is that it works. And as someone who's meditated for 20 years, and 15 of that was in intensive training and study in an ashram, I was initially skeptical, as you might imagine. I've tried it out, and it's really an extraordinary and compelling innovation. I was seriously impressed. So Ariel and her team, currently they're involved in something like over 120 different research institutions who are all exploring different applications of Muse, including Harvard, the Mayo Clinic, and many more. Also, I was hugely impressed with the energy and thought that Ariel and her team have invested in Muse. They have a lot of integrity in really trying to provide the user with the most well-rounded learning experience. And you'll even hear in the later part of the show, Ariel both gives me a hard time about my desire to know how my results stack up against others. And then, of course, she gracefully relents and indulges my desire under pressure. I know it's very unmeditative of me. And... As with everything in this wonderful interview, Ariel handles it with grace and manages to school me in the process. So finally, the folks at Muse are offering listeners of the One Mind Meditation Podcast a $50 discount on the headset. So that's very cool. And uh, be, if that's something that's of interest to you, please be sure to listen at the end of the show, I provide the details for how you can get that discount. And also, you'll notice at a certain point, Ariel refers to pregnancy brain. So 
basically, I learned before the show that Ariel was seven months pregnant and my wife is eight months pregnant. So there were a lot of Mazel Tovs going around the houses and we were both really excited. So that comes up in the show and you'll hear it. But I wanted to let you know if suddenly you're like scratching your head about like, why is she talking about pregnancy brain? It's because she's about two months out from giving birth. Amen. And congratulations, Ariel. So let's not waste any more time. Here's my interview with Ariel Garten. Ariel, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to meet you and have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. It is such an honor and pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Fantastic. So I have a lot of questions about the Muse headband. It's such an amazing and exciting product and piece of technology. And before we jump in to Muse, I'd love to get a sense of the person behind this super compelling and interesting technology. You're, you're a fashion designer, a psychotherapist, and really a, a leader in this field of EEG headwear and brain-controlled technology. Tell us your story. Where do you come from, and, and how did you end up co-founding Interaxon, the company responsible for creating Muse? So I come from a place of loving life just loving life so deeply and being so excited about the world and how it works and what we can create from it and how we connect to people in it. So that passion has really driven just about everything I do from clothing design, making three-dimensional art objects that we then wear that communicate about our personality, that create entree points for people to interact with one another, that express who you are to psychotherapy, allowing people to dive into their own minds and holding their hand as we walk step by step into their own unconscious processes to tease out you know, why we work, why we interact the way we do, how we can change that interaction to bring more joy and more love into our lives by releasing our defenses, by recognizing them, and by overcoming the artificial barriers that we create in our own mind to creating news, which is really a culmination of psychology, neuroscience. I'm trained as a neuroscientist um, and have worked in research labs from neurogenesis through to Parkinson's disease. And in Muse, we were really able to bring together this idea of really strong, technically driven neuroscience, mm. reading your brain. Um, it's a data-driven approach with an understanding and an insight into the self and these beautiful sort of transformational experiences that let you feel what it's like to be human in new ways. Awesome. Well, I, I kind of get, obviously, I got a kind of picture of many different streams kind of flowing into this river, which has become Muse. So you're born in, are you originally from Toronto? How, how did you, like, where did the vision for this emerge? Was it chronologically, t tell me a little bit about did you start as a designer, as a psychotherapist, as a neuroscientist? Take me through the story a little bit. Sure. So born and raised in Toronto, Canada. My mother is a really amazing artist. Hmm. Anything she touches turns into a piece of beauty. So I would sit there and watch her creating from absolutely nothing, just from blank canvas, beautiful images that created joy and inspiration in people's lives. And so it always seemed really obvious to me that you could, from nothing, create something and create mm. things that were beautiful and transformational. My dad was in real estate, so there's also a business discipline inside of the family. And from a very young age, I learned how to think in entrepreneurial terms. It seemed crazy to me that you'd 
work for somebody else and give up your labor to be making Tide or, you know, these random brand products that impact people's lives in really mediocre ways and Mm. often, you know, decrease their humanity rather than improve it. Right. So I was always entrepreneurial from making little lines of clothing and then realizing that I could bring them to market and people could use them and I can share them widely to ultimately working in a research lab where we were using brainwave technology to create concerts where people could make music with their minds. So this was really a passion of mine. How do we take neuroscience and make it sort of visible, tangible, and interactable? So I started working with Steve Mann. He's one of the inventors of the wearable computer. And he had an early brain-computer interface system. And myself and Chris, one of my co-founders, and James Fung, um, a PhD student there at the time, created concerts where 48 people at a time could make music with their mind. Mm. From there, I recognized that we were literally controlling the world with our mind and then reflecting our brain state back to ourselves and the world needed to know about this. So I started started the process of bringing together Trevor, my third co-founder, with Chris and myself in creating experiences that allowed people to touch their own mind and let their mind touch the world. And we did crazy things like let people control the lights in the CN Tower with their brain from across the country and made thought controlled anything you can think of like slot car machines and toasters, made a levitating chair where as you relax – the chair would actually rise to the ceiling thanks to a winch that was implanted in the ceiling. Mm. And then ultimately really moved into the process of building Muse as a consumer product, something that people could tangibly use every day to understand and impact their own mind. Just backing up there to that first example you gave of the concerts and making music with your minds. And that, you know, that's obviously like, that's a beautiful way to talk about it. Give me a few details. Like, what does that actually mean? How do you create a concert? How do you play music with your mind together in a in a group? What's happening? How can you control instruments or tones with your mind? So at that point, and this was over, this was about 15 years ago at this point, we had a single lead EEG on everybody in the audience mm. and we it, broke them up into it, groups. And EEG is a, an electroencephalogram, is that right? Exactly. So we had a single sensor on people's, uh, the back of their head, and it was tracking their level of uh, alpha, beta, theta activity. So your brain waves are the sum total of the neuronal firing that happens. It's the sum total of the electrical signals that you read on the surface of the head. Mm. So we tracked the audience and as their level of, for example, alpha increased or decreased in a certain population of the audience, we could then ascribe that to a tone or ascribe that to uh, modulating the pitch or modulating the volume. Yeah. So the audience actually starts to modulate MIDI produced sounds with their brain. And we've done lots of different in- interactions here. So we've had people in the audience actually controlling the musicians, the performers, and the sound that comes out of their synthesized instruments. So you end up with this regenerative loop between the performer playing something, the audience modifying it, the performer then hearing the new modified sound, um, and then changing their play and then Um, regenerating back into the audience. Mm -hmm. We've done it so that an individual performer can um, control a set of sounds themselves on stage. We've done it with 10 performers on stage, all controlling different aspects of the sound with their brain by modulating their levels of alpha or beta or theta. And in doing so, create a concert with 10 people and the sonified aspects of their mind. That's amazing. Go ahead. And very cool. And then at the same time, you can also do the same thing for the lighting in the room. 
So you can have the sounds and the lights all sort of moving and glowing and changing in this brilliant concert with one another reflecting the brains of the participants. So how does an individual, well, I guess what we're doing here is we're, we're also setting a little bit of foundation for the later conversation around how Muse works, but how does someone then control their alpha, beta, theta brainwaves? Like how does that work? How does someone in the audience with this electrode on the back of their head, how do they modulate their brainwaves? So I must say this was really early on. So we used really blunt bands like alpha, beta, theta. Now we do a much more uh, complex processing. Um, and we no longer look at these simple components in mm. these ways. But early on, the easiest way to do it was uh, looking at alpha, beta, and theta. And so as you relax, your alpha waves naturally increase. Mm. As you focus in particular by doing frontal processing, you know, thinking, engaging your men frontal mental sort of capacity, you end up increasing your level of beta waves. Mm. So somebody sitting in the audience by modulating their own state, by relaxing, would have alpha rise, which would change a uh, characteristic of the sound. By focusing, would have beta rise, which would change a second characteristic of the sound. Mm. And like any system, when you make it visible, you can then learn from it. Yeah. So it's very much, you know, the same way that you learn to train anything as soon as it becomes visible and obvious, our bodies become quite good at learning and modulating and changing um, really on their own. Right. Okay, that's fascinating. And then so from these humble beginnings, you then said you iterated that over, it sounds like the last 15 years into increasingly complex and dramatic, sometimes pageantry oriented events that really demonstrated the power of this. And I remember reading about this, but that, or seeing it in your TED talk, but you said that during, what was it, the, uh, the Olympics in Canada, mm -hmm. that, tell us that story a little bit. In 2010, the Olympics came to Canada. We're in Ontario and the Olympics were located in Vancouver. Mm. And somehow we ended up creating this project where we became Ontario's feature showcase at the Olympics where this tiny, tiny little team with I know, amazing. unproven technology awesome. that you know, could let people control the world with their mind. Yeah. And we became Ontario's feature showcase for innovation. So we created an installation that allowed people in Vancouver to then control the lights on the CN Tower, the Canadian Parliament Buildings, or Niagara Falls by using their brain all the way across the country. So over the 17 days of the Olympics, 7,000 people got to individually interact with these massive icons and project their brain literally 2,000 miles across the country. Phenomenal. To make the lights on the CN Tower 1,800 feet into the sky spin, slow down, change color. And so you'd see people, you know, on their cell phones, standing next to their husband saying like, look up at the tower, that's dad doing it, that's dad doing it, like calling from Vancouver back home to Toronto. Incredible. And just for the U.S. audience here, because we are notoriously poor at geography, Vancouver is over on the west coast of Canada, and then the CN Tower is that iconic tower in Toronto that everyone recognizes when they see it, and then obviously a short distance away is Niagara Falls. Amazing. And so it was like, so it's 2,000 miles between Vancouver and Toronto. And then we had live feeds from each of the sites so that people could really see in real time the impact that they were having in Niagara Falls, in Toronto, at the Ottawa Water Capital and the Parliament Buildings. Mm. So it was 
yeah. quite, quite an extraordinary demonstration of the mind's ability and also our ability to affect lots of people, our ability to project ourselves and our a characteristic of our state to others and have that impact thousands of people around. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still want to like get at the nub of this, like why, what coalesced for you to get to the point where this is the work you're doing? What was the seed? Like what happened? Cause something must happen where you're like a light bulb or something. You're like, I'm going to work with brain sensing technology or, or brain controlling technology. And what, where did that in you, was it an event? Was it an inspiration? And obviously there's been an iteration up to Muse and evolution, but was there anything specific that set you on this course? I don't think that there was a moment or an event. The course has been very, very evolving. Mm. And for me, the core of it was a few things. One, making the invisible visible. And two, specifically around how our brain creates, determines, defines the self and the problem that this thing that creates, determines, and defines the self in so many ways, not always potentially, but in so many ways, is something that we have no access to. Mm-hmm. So our brain is how we process the world. It's all of our perception. It's how we build relationships. It's why, how, why, and you know, for what reason I'm talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. It's how I'm moving my hand as I do so. It is absolutely, from a neuroscience perspective, everything about our experience. Again, there's you know, the potential that there's more beyond simply the brain that creates our experience. And yet we have no way to interact with it. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't feel it. We can't smell it. We, we don't really know how to talk to it. We, it's, there's this barrier. So there's this invisible thing that is driving and creating us. Yeah. And I really wanted to know how to interact with it. So Brainwaves became one of the first ways that you could in some way tangibly do that. You could take real information that came from the brain and in some way make it visible so that you could then hear characteristics and qualities of it. Hmm. And then the more exciting part happened when we could then take that information and then use that to change our own interactions and our behaviors um, and then see the outcome from that. So Muse came out of... The fact that, yes, we'd created all these fun, crazy technologies where, you know, you could control stuff with your brain, you could see your brain's activity, you could, you know, see it reflected in in a big space. But the point of Muse was to actually build that into an everyday tool that allowed you to really understand, improve, interact with your mind in ways that can fundamentally change your life, Mm -hmm. in ways that can fundamentally teach you about these internal processes so that you can have a dialogue with them, so that you can have a conversation with them. Um, And so that you can, master is the wrong word because it's, it's far too top down, but you know, you can, you can create a, a mastery and a control, or you can create an awareness and an interaction with your own mind that changes how you live in the world. Mm. And ultimately, 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 I want everybody to be able to experience joy and freedom in their life. And we get caught up in all of these narratives, these thoughts, these feelings, these defensivenesses that we have that keep us from experiencing ourselves as the beautiful, amazing creatures that we are. Yeah. So if there's a real driver to my work right now, that is absolutely it. Allowing everybody to understand their own capacities and beauty and amazement without getting caught up or held back by our stories and our limiting beliefs and the stuff that sits in our head that we may not have a way to dialogue with until you learn a tool like meditation. Right. Or until you have something in your hand that you can use. 
Okay, so what is your background with meditation? I mean, obviously, I'm 100% with you in thinking about meditation as a tool for self-knowledge. And, and everyone, I encourage you to check out Ariel's TED Talk where she opens with this famous saying, know thyself. And you really, you build out the talk from there. And obviously, you're, you're hitting on that same point right now, but what is your background with meditation? And I want to get more into that later as we kind of talk more about the technology and the actual application and, and the use of Muse. But for you personally, can you tell me about your background sure. with meditation? So meditation was something I've always been curious about. Yeah. And as you know, a very young child at seven, eight years old, I'd lie in my bed at night and try to meditate. I'd read about meditating. As I became older, as a kid, and, you did. Yeah, I wasn't successful. I mean, I wasn't what I would now define as successful. I had, uh, I didn't really have tools. I would just sit there and I would try and I yeah. would explore and I would try yeah. to figure out. Totally, um, that's the I amazing didn't thing. You know, I didn't have guides or teachers. I didn't. I didn't have things that really helped me other than reading and only understanding the way that an eight-year-old can, which is not a hell of a lot yeah. when you're talking about complex problems. Right. But you're free. Um, you're free, you, right? You're less conditioned. So you can sometimes go somewhere with your awareness that adults struggle with. True. But you don't know when you've gotten there because you have no idea what sort of the bounds of the problem are to begin with. Absolutely. Um, I look at kids now whose parents meditate and somebody teaches them to meditate. I'm like, wouldn't that have been great? Um, yeah. So... So I, you know, went in circles, I, I think is probably mm. an apt description of, of my skill at that point. Yeah. Um, and then I was trained as a psychotherapist and during that process, didn't really realize that I was learning a lot of the same principles and tools, but it was not called meditation. Mm. So, you know, I'd be learning to understand people's limiting beliefs. I'd be learning ways to manage anxiety through you know, techniques like CBT, dialogue with your with your inner self, um, teach people not to engage in their thought, all of these things that from different directions meditation points at. Um, but in that context, it was never called meditation. Yeah. And then as a neuroscientist would read all the literature on meditation, which, you know, so strongly points to the extraordinary impact that it has on the brain. And it wasn't until going through the whole process of thought-controlled computing and then figuring out what is it that we can do with Muse that's going to have the best impact on the world, that the worlds of meditation and brain-sensing technology collided for us mm. then. And we'd started to do things like go to Wisdom 2.0 and really delve into the world of meditation and understand how we could, with sort of renewed skill and knowledge and experience, connect uh, brain sensing technology to meditation as as a valid tool. And on my team, uh, Trevor actually considers himself to be a Buddhist. So you know, we internally had a no lot of knowledge and skill that allowed us to, to support this process. Mm. And then for me, my real success at actually beginning a stable meditation practice and becoming a good quote unquote good, um, you know, capable meditator yeah. was when we started building Muse as a meditation tool. And then I used the technology as we went through the iterations of developing it. And in my own journey, in my process, you know, Muse taught me to meditate as we built it. Hmm. And are you, are you still practicing? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hopefully, hopefully one never stops. Yeah. Um, 
I meditate daily in a variety of different ways. Once Muse really trained the discipline of focused attention, uh, it then really opened up the entire world of meditation practice and, you know, all the books that I'd read from eight years old on finally made sense in a way that I could apply it regularly. And then as a company, you know, we have constant meditation retreats, we bring in teachers, uh, we have a daily practice that we all do here at the office mm. on top of you know, my own practices and musing and everything else. So that's been a journey. We probably started building Muse about five years ago. Yeah. And, you know, like everyone, our, our knowledge and skill continues to grow daily. Yeah, I believe it. So shifting into the headset itself, the technology, can you share with everyone, and, and we've kind of talked around this so far, but exactly how does it work with Muse, your most evolved expression of this technology? How does it work? What's going on? What's, what's the magic behind Muse? So Muse is a clinical grade EEG and there are sensors on the forehead and behind the ears. And what it does is it tracks your brain activity in real time while you meditate. And it's specifically created for a focused attention meditation. Mm -hmm. And it very sensitively knows when you're in a state of focused attention and when your mind has wandered. So it translates the sound of your mind, your focused mind versus your wandering mind, mm -hmm. into sound. So you literally hear what goes on in your mind. Mm. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking, distracted, mind wandering, you hear the winds or the storms pick up. And as you bring yourself back to a state of clear, focused attention, it quiets those winds and storms. So it's this very simple feedback loop that allows you to really look at new qualities of your attention, um, really drive you to a state of focused attention, or yeah. really allow you to observe your own brain in ways that we haven't had access to before. That's amazing. And uh, well, one, I love the idea of you can listen to the sound of your mind and the sound of your brain. That that's awesome. It's a very evocative way to talk about it. And it's an interesting way to talk about it because you don't think of your mind. It, it, it's interesting. You don't think about the sound of your mind. It's except when you really stop and think for a moment about your daily experience, your subjective experience, when things are difficult or when things are, are, are rocky, you feel stressed. What do you think about it? It's like, my, you know, there's just like noise in your head, right? It's just like, you, mm -hmm. you, in certain ways, you want to escape the chaos and the storm in your mind. And like when you, when you think about metaphors and images that people use, they actually evoke powerful sonic imagery. So that's just to say, I think it's very apropos to to say this, that you get to listen to the sound of your mind. And because it, although it's from a certain point of view, from an outside perspective, your mind's obviously silent. The subjective experience of your mind is the furthest thing. Yes. So, oh, well, I mean, it, so it's cool to get this, to have Muse reflect that reality. And I, I can see, certainly in the way you're talking about it, creates that bridge for the individual to have an uh, almost like a mirror, mm -hmm. like a sonic mirror kind of. 
And we thought a lot about the right metaphor. And we looked at the ways that people talk about the mind. You know, you say, my mind is like a sieve. So that means that your mind is like water, river, or like what's going up there in the attic. So your mind is like the high place, the top point, where there's bats in the belfry, there's these, or you're losing your marbles. So, you know, mind yeah. is like a stone or a rock. And we went through all these ways of thinking about the brain from our own language and the way that we talk about the constructs of our mind. And our mind is like the weather was one that really resonated and works so well for this metaphor mm. and allows you also to, as, as you so aptly described, um, see that those thoughts as merely noise and wind and distraction. Yeah. And there's this beautiful metaphor that we really enjoyed, which is your mind, you know, you're like the flagpole and the flag flaps in the wind, but the pole doesn't actually go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And nice. so when you think about, yeah, and you think about your mind as, as stormy, all of a sudden, all of those thoughts and the content that seemed to matter so much no longer matters because it's just noise and it's just wind. Right. It's just stuff that's blowing through. Yeah. That's And great. we move out of content and into awareness of the thought, out of the content of thought. Yeah. Perfect. I love that. All right. So what if we go chronologically i was thinking if we if we just go almost through like a sample session where you're sitting down to use muse cuz i i really want to give my audience everyone who's listening i want you to have a sense of what this is actually like and and uh, ariel if we could just go through it as if we were sitting down to use it and and i can ask you a series of questions about the different aspects of it sure so what happens when you use Muse is you sit down, you slip on the headband so that the sensors are reading your brain. It connects to the app on your phone, you open the app, and then it takes you into a calibration period. Now in the calibration, we're checking where your brain is at in its active state. So it asks you categories like shapes and colors, and you think of all the shapes and all, you, all the colors you can. And we do that because we no longer just do alpha or beta-based interactions. We're actually building a model of your own brain, and that model of your brain um, is updated every time you use the app. So it really learns from you and adapts to you. After the calibration, you're taken into the experience yourself, and you can choose a number of different soundscapes. So you can be in a desert, you can be in an urban park, you can be in the rainforest and hear your mind like the rain so that there's really the right sound environment that works for you. Yeah. And then you're, go ahead. One, yeah, so one question is, when you say it builds a model mm -hmm. each time of, of your brain, how does that work? How does cycling through, because the experience I'm on the user end is you're going through, in your mind, you're running through a list of objects. How, and mm -hmm. so what's happening there with the, the headband? How is that process sure. building a model? So in that process, we are setting the baseline for that day because your brain is different every day. So when you come into the experience, you're setting your uh, baseline, really the upper bar yeah. for what an active brain is for you. Because depending on how much caffeine you've had, how much sleep you have, it affects your overall level of brain activity, brain dynamics, all sorts of things. So we come in and test you that day where you're at, where your active state is. Now, uh, as you I do see. it more and more over time, and we have hundreds and hundreds of examples of your brain on different days, 
that process can actually fall away because it has a more sufficient understanding of your brain and its, you know, variability and all its shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. um, but as you come in, there's a training process where it learns from you each time. Nice. All right. Got it. So it's like, I, I, I understand that that's helpful. The idea of the baseline. All right, cool. So, all right. So then you get, you were saying, then you get to choose from the different environments, mm -hmm. this different kind of sonic environments. Exactly. So you can be inside of a desert and have your mind wash over the sands um, or be in a rainforest and hear your sound as the rain, your, your mind as the rain. And then you can customize all of the sound settings. So turn, turn the volumes up, down, do whatever you want. There's a 10 session program that guides you through different ways to use it. So different exercises in actually listening to your brain activity and uh, becoming really engaged in your own mental process, mindfulness-based approaches, sensation of breath. So there are a number of different exercises that guide you through different ways of using the technology and, and lenses that you can use it through. Yeah. Or you can just turn off all of the guidance and simply go into the experience of hearing your mind. Mm. So you can then choose how long a session you want. So you can do anywhere from one minute, if you want a quick little tiny hit, up to an hour or more. And then you move into the actual experience yourself. So you pop in your headphones so that you hear the sound through your phone. And you go through the experience of feeling your mind wander, and then immediately the wind's picking up, and then returning back to attention on your breath, your attention on a neutral object, which then quiets the winds. And it's this very simple cycle of winds pick up, you notice, you return back to your breath. So essentially, in a focused attention meditation, it's our job to notice that our mind has wandered, and then bring it on back. So from there, you have yeah. a real time experience. Yeah. And then at the end, you're actually able to see what your brain was doing over the course of your entire session. Yeah. So there's a graph that shows you your brain's activity. You can go back and then reflect on what made it active, what, what happened in the room, what your internal process was. You can track how you do session over session so you can compare it. There's a little bit of gamification around points and birds because if you're very quiet, you get birds and people get very excited. And that's actually part of our subtle undermining of the goal-directed nature of this. You get excited because you got a reward and then the reward flies away. The bird just flies away. Oh, yeah. I noticed that right away. It's like you, you, you get pumped about the birds and, you know, and that's happening for different reasons. But, but as soon as you do, it sends you into suddenly your mind and your brain gets active and then the waves pick up. And so you're saying that's very deliberate in what way? You know, we needed to create or we wanted to create something that engages people in meditation and yeah. helps you build your practice. And yeah. so there's a motivational architecture there around points and rewards. We also recognize that points and rewards are in so many ways antithetical to meditation. Potentially, and yeah. So, you could, you, yes. I could definitely see traditionalists seeing it that way. So as much as we have them there to get you onto the train and kind of motivate you on your journey, we also needed to undermine them and, and point out that points and rewards are not the point and not the reward. So when you get a bird, for example, you get really excited that you got a bird. You're like, yay, I got this reward. And then as soon as you do that, the excitement and the engagement in the reward of the reward causes the reward to just disappear. And yeah. so you learn this, you ultimately learn non-striving from that process. Mm. Ah, yeah. Okay. Now I understand that. That's great. That's very clever. 
clever, accidental, who knows, you know, we, we you, you try to be clever, but, um, it, yeah, it's not a fancy times. spin though. You actually, you built that in consciously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's We're great. Really, really banging our heads against how do you deliver this in a way that, that doesn't, doesn't create such a goal directed nature. And that's something that we still constantly ask ourselves and are always building new features and new guidance and new mechanisms to pull people out of, you know, caring about the reward state or being frustrated when they don't get the win state, quote unquote. Yeah. Is it more the latter than the former? Um, the, yeah. For, for most people, there's more frustration around the win, uh, around not getting to the win state. Yeah. And so we've been working really hard to, to not make the wind aversive. Yeah. Make the fact that your mind is wandering and that you can engage in that a beautiful thing. Yeah. And we do an exercise where you simply listen to your wandering mind. And most people, when they get there, like, no, my mind's not supposed to wander. It's like, just listen to it. And for most people, as soon as you start to listen to the wind, it naturally quiets. When you just become engaged in that present moment, it's amazing that it just dissipates and goes away. You know, yeah. when you look at a difficult emotion, you give it the permission to dissipate and go. And so that visceral experience is really powerful Yeah. of knowing that, you know, when this thing that was so scary that you were trying to run away from it, as soon as you look at it and be with it can dissipate. Yeah, that that's cool. That's really good. I, so my training is in, I, I trained in, a, in something called Advaita Vedanta. So Nia Advaita and that is all about free awareness. There's no anchor for your meditation. It's just be still, relax, and let everything, let your entire thought stream just be there. So you're not, unlike a lot of maybe traditional Buddhist practice and also a lot of Hindu practices where you start with the, the preliminary practices, you start with a focused awareness approach like the breath. Mm -hmm. The way my teacher taught, it was just like, you know, he just shoved us right into the deep end and it, you know, it took a long time, but you get, you know, you get used to this very similar to what you were describing, a state where you're comfortable just with whatever mind state you're in, doesn't matter. You're relaxed even if your mind is not. And part mm -hmm. of, part of that is, you know, you're just, you're training, you're training yourself how to identify with a part of yourself that, that really never moves. So it's in a certain way, it's just independent of the fluctuations of your mind. Sonic input though, was always for me like an incredible part of that experience. Like we, when you mm. would naturally fall into very deep and quiet places. And I would always find in the, the meditation practice that we did, sound was always just the most magnificent catalyst or the, it would always just send me deeper. And so I found that interesting with Muse. I was like, right away, I related to, somehow I related to the birds because in my practice, birds were always just somehow a huge part of my practice because when I really heard the, if you're, if you're like lost in your mind, you can't really hear the birds. That it like, that, that's what I found. And then when I would really be practicing diligently, the whole soundscape would open yes. up. And, you know, so I really, I loved that you designed it in this way. And I've since 
tried a lot more focused awareness practice since since uh, officially leaving the ashram, and so I found it I found it very natural to be able to also do the muse focused anchor on the breath. So I I loved it, but the birds, I love the birds. I really loved it, and and I found it. It's like. Yeah, I don't know what else I want to say about it, but I love the birds. And was, yeah, so I have one question, which is like, sure, how does the app? What was the word? It's obviously like in the analytics that you get after the session. Well, and 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 then we can like come back to the chronological order. But there's recoveries is one of the、mm-hmm. analytics that you guys describe and. I'm assuming what that means is, as you described it earlier, it's every time your mind wanders away from your anchor, and then you bring it back. So, each exactly, time, yeah. So how does how does Muse sense that? Because that right there alone is a to me seems like a really significant、um, yep. development in being able to reflect that back to a practitioner because. It's such a huge part of focused awareness practice. It's just that simple action, and you really hit the nail on the head. That's really what the action is, and we feel like it's you know you can stay in focused attention. That's great, and if you've mastered and you stayed there, that's fantastic. But the real, the real work, the real you know amazing part is when you're able to notice that you're elsewhere, and then you're able to choose and bring your brain. Back to your focused attention. Yeah, that's that's the magic. Yeah,、um, and that's the magic that is the teaching tool. That it's okay that you've wandered, and the joy there is in noticing, and then if you so choose, returning. Yeah,、um, and that's 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 why we record. You know, that's why we celebrate these recoveries. Yeah, and、uh, it's also kind of the core of our. What we've built, so the algorithm that we have、uh, is able to differentiate focused attention from mind wandering,、mm. um, and so we're able to know when you're wandering, and then when you your brain changes to a state of attention and you've brought it back. That is that is the core algorithmic experience. Got it. So I know that Muse is very sensitive. So like blinking, yawning, all these things can affect the brain sensors. How responsive is it? To the perturbations of your attention, like so. Sometimes for me, it feels instant, and then sometimes it feels like there's a lag in terms of yeah, like、so、the waves slowing down. And obviously, that's that's my perceptual interpretation. But what's what's happening there? Your perceptual interpretation is correct. So there's a 500 millisecond delay.、Um, so there's half second between when your mind. Um, changes state and when the、um, application responds.、Hmm. So when you think about it, normally your mind wanders. Sometimes it's one, three minutes. You're like, oh, I'm on the grocery list. Like you know, it's oh yeah, sixty, ninety, hundred, five minutes. Who knows? Until you realize you're on the grocery list and then bring it back. Yeah. So Muse's delay is five hundred milliseconds. So your mind wanders, and then five hundred milliseconds later, you hear the wind pick up, and that becomes your cue to bring it back. And what is five hundred milliseconds? Is that is that、um, a full? Does that equal one second, or is it much less? Oh, it's half a second. Half a second. Yeah. Got it. And you know, we can't characterize all aspects of thought. You know, we're still at sort of a baseline with this technology. 
So there may be other things that are happening that, that it's not picking up, but what it does pick up is quite cool and, and yeah. quite engaging and accurate. Yeah, incredibly so. So, all right, let's go back into the, the kind of chronological narrative. So we're, I think where we were is, you know, and we've kind of now covered this in a circular way, but like, so you're in, you're now, and, and you talked about this gamification and, and you're in the process and say you're, you're going through it. Tell, take us through to the end of a cycle and then what gets produced out of that. So we, we basically were at the end, which is you get your graph, you get your data, you get to see how you, what your practice was like. And then the real end point is, you know, your personal reflection on that, your ability to look at that and, and gain knowledge and gain insight from seeing what your brain was doing from the motivation. And then you're able to go back and compare how you did from session to session and think about that and learn from yourself and learn how you're changing and growing over time. And then I guess the cycle really ends when you come back the next day and begin all over again. Because this is, of course, not just a one-time gig. It's a daily practice yeah. that you you move forward every day. And some days that might be without muse. So we have lots of lots of musers that muse absolutely every day. And sometimes you're musing every day because you're a beginner and it's like the tool you are holding on to and it's teaching you your very first steps. Yeah. If somebody has a meditation practice or if you've graduated from being a beginner, now that you have those first steps, you can now have an entire world of meditation, you know, tools and teachings that are open to you. Mm. you no know, muse is not the only way to meditate. And we you know, sincerely hope that everybody knows that. And so people with a more experienced practice might do, uh, you know, muse twice a day. They might muse for five minutes once and then really it drops them into the zone and you're in your focused attention if you honed it and you're ready and now you can do a 20-minute or an hour-long practice in a different um, methodology that you love. It might be something that you come back to every few days to see how you're doing or give you an insight. You might turn off all of the volume and use it with another practice and just see mm. what your brain is doing relative to that practice and use it as a tool to engage other practices and, and cool. discover and play. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now, well, one, there are a few things. Let's go back to the analytics. And But I loved how you said you're calling the users musers and you're calling the process of using this musing. Mm -hmm. All right. I like that. It's something that people start naturally saying. Oops. Yeah. Very cool. All right. So the app gives you these analytics and, and one of them, which I really love is the end of the session, you get this nice colorful graph and it's got three basic categories that it shows you the percentage of time that your mind was active, neutral, and calm. And I love the graph, number one, just cause it's simple. And well, but I, I wondered, well, like lots of different things. I wondered, like, can they see my data? And then, like, I was like, what kind of averages do you see here with people who are new versus people who use it over time? Are you able to monitor that and to get, like, a kind of longitudinal perspective on the impact of Muse? And, and one sec, I, I'm, my dog is whining. Hold on. Sure. Bell, Bella. I dog sit every day and she's around this time. She always goes through like a, she gets excited because oh. she's almost, she's got like incredible nose. It's the faintest whiff of a suggestion of one of her owners. It's like, she goes nuts. <laughs> I know. Nice. Jeff, but, all right. So, okay. Yeah. Is that so question you, clear? 
I'm just remembering. Yeah, the averages. Question. Yeah, what yeah, kind average of averages? Great. I can answer that. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. My cognitive processing in pregnancy is very different than it normally is, and oh, I'm aware of that. Pregnancy brain is real. It's it's very very real, and it started quite early. Um, it's been fascinating to watch, but separate topic. Yeah. So coming back to answering your question. Okay. Um. Did, I'm not so picking up have, any lag time. I know we haven't talked much before, but just so you know that like it seems pretty tight to me. I'm not well, I'm not picking up peg, pregnancy brain, but I obviously don't know you beyond the interview. Thank you. Um, so yes, we can absolutely see the change in an individual over time. So when somebody comes in as a novice, their brain is mainly up in the active. You know, it's quite spiky sometimes they'll be able to dip down but then as soon as it becomes active it becomes typically hugely active mm. and then as they continue to meditate and they continue to use muse you see how that changes you see how they spend more time down and calm the spikes are less dramatic they're able to manage the distractions that are around them and those distractions are both the external distractions because you can very clearly see when there's a sound in the environment and it yeah. causes your brain to pull away from your practice yeah um and you can see when there's an internal process that pulls you away from your focus practice so over time and you know i can sit down to some next to somebody who's a muser and we can open all of their sessions from, you know, day zero to wherever they are three months, six months, a year later, and absolutely see that progress. It's quite amazing. Mm. That's cool. And do you, do you have like, do you collect data on this? Like how, how do you do? So if somebody joins our research program, yes. um, then we can look at your data. Um, if you don't, then we can't. I, so yeah. The research program is something that allows us and accredited third-party institutions that you agree to as they come up. Um, we have a little section called Muse Labs, which will say, hey, do you want to join this research study? Do you want to do this thing? It lets you, us and those research institutions, when they come up, if you grant them, see your brain data and then use it for research. So nice. we have 120 different research institutions that work with Muse in a wide variety of ways. So Mayo Clinic is in the middle of a study using Muse with breast cancer patients. Wow. So women come in uh, awaiting surgery for breast cancer, and they're given a Muse four weeks prior to surgery, and that helps them manage the stress of the cancer care process. And now we're also tracking recovery times. The folks at Mayo believe that using – well, it's known that meditation process can reduce recovery times post-surgery, and so mm. now we're testing that Muse to see the decrease. And does and that now they rolled it out to three different sites – um, awesome. across all their different clinics. And does that re relate to like pre and postpartum depression? And I know like, for instance, here in the States, that's becoming like a mandatory screening. Now they're really like tuning into that and they're like, look, this needs to just be on the table because it's something that has been ignored. So I don't think we have any pre postpartum depression studies. Um, but the notion of depression overall has really come up. It's something that we've talked about with the National Institute of Mental Health. Yeah. Can we, can we also use a tool like this as a uh, depression screening or mm. use it to come up with a neuromarker for mm. depression? Um, we have a, a study that's going with Harvard and Spalding Rehab looking at traumatic brain injury. We have a, one that will be upcoming at UNC Wilmington looking at using Muse for ADHD and tracking nice. um, brain activity in ADHD and allowing kids to improve their focus without using Ritalin, but simply by learning tools that allow them to manage their own state. Oh, fantastic. That's awesome. 
I, and on and on. Yeah, yeah. That's so great. And, and all right, so I have a question. Like my first, coming back into the analytics, my first session I got, so I got 12% active, 37% neutral, and 51% calm. And that was, mm-hmm. so I'm guessing that's not bad, right? For uh, So it, yeah. I knew you were going to ask me that, and I'm not going to tell you. Oh. Um, because, yeah, man. I mean, I really do want to tell you that what you did was really good and give you the reinforcement and the pat on the head because um, it actually was. That's a good score. Uh-huh. However, really, I don't want to tell you that because it's not about how good you do relative to others. It's not about, you know, does the score mean that I'm amazing? It's about giving you a tool to reflect and have insight and keep moving forward. Um, everybody always wants to know, you know, what's the top and what's the bottom? And I, you know, I'm in, I'm totally. in the top percentile. It's very and human. I, that, uh, there's yeah, no, there's it's no, very human and I really don't want to tell you. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay, well, that's a choice you guys are making. I, I, wouldn't, I don't see it in a pejorative sense. Like I, I'm like, that to me is just, it's another part of the whole like spectrum of this thing, which is very interesting. And uh, I understand why you would do that. For me, I, I like, I, I find that very interesting to kind of, well, yeah, exactly. Because it's human nature. You always want to know like, well, how, how am I next to the next person? Mm-hmm. And so let's not worry about how you are relative to the next person. And I know that sensation can be frustrating, but sit with this rest of Oh, the frustration yeah, yeah. No, for a second I, and let that dissipate. Yeah. I know. No, no. I, <laughs> I know I, you certainly know that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's more a point of interest. I, I am, uh, in relation to meditation, I, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years. I, I love the practice for the fruits, not for the, uh, uh, well, what would we say for the competitive, uh, positioning? Nevertheless, it is. <laughs> human nature yeah okay so let's let's also celebrate the joy of this being human nature let's totally celebrate the joy of that sensation and desire that comes up in our human selves that's what i'm talking about like to want to know how we rank next to the person next to us and that's so human and so beautiful because of it exactly and you got the monks that henry you know what's his name uh bernard or henry benson tested and uh Mm -hmm. herbert benson tested henry and uh yeah. So, all right. All right. So you're not going to tell me and that's, so that's proprietary information that is not shared, but we're going to celebrate it for, um, together. We're I'm gonna... not telling you, I'm not, not telling you because it's proprietary, Yeah. Um, but because it's, it's not, it's not the, not the raison d'etre. I, I understand. I understand. This is, it's a decision you guys have made. I respect it. All right. So I, I can tell you if you do want the, you know, joy of knowing that 51 is a very good score. And if I looked at that graph, because um, it's cool, I can now get to the point where I look at graphs and I can see quite obviously if somebody has a meditation practice and, yeah. you know, how how deep their practice is. So if I would look at that graph, I would definitely know that you had a great meditation practice. There you go. Feel better? Uh, well, I'm interested. <laughs> yes, I, I, and and yes, probably on some level, it satisfies that deep human need. How 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 do I look next to the other guy? Yep, yep. you you are approved. You are loved. You yep. are you are seen as, yes. as successful in what yes. you do and what you 
just hold on to is yeah. something that's important to you. So yeah. yes, you're a good meditator. Yeah. Okay. Very good. So you told me what I already knew. And I love you very much through this process. Oh, I just yes. have to say. Of course. Thank you. Very lovable. Yeah. Thank you very much. And, and yes, likewise. Um, awesome. Yeah. All right. So when I was a kid, my, my dad had this pair of over-the-ear headphones and they were like a biofeedback mechanism. You'd put on the headphones and it would play like a, just a single tone. And as you relax, the tone would like descend to deeper notes. And if you got agitated, the tone became more high-pitched. Kind of like a stress test, I guess. And I think there was like a band that you wore around your chest as you did it, which obviously tapped in your heart rate. So that, I'm guessing like that was like, that was probably based on the heart, right? And mm -hmm. yeah, so I guess that was like the, the great grandfather. Obviously it's not brain sensing, it's more, more heart sensing, but similar in that it's a kind of biofeedback mechanism. You're, you're listening to your heart. Yeah, so the precursor technologies here are things that allow you to listen to your heart and slow your heart rate. Um, they're things like M-Wave and heart math that look at heart rate variability mm. and to heart coherence through it. Um, there's galvanic skin response where you look at the level of sweat that you have on typically your finger and then you can tell your level of arousal, stress, or calm. Yeah. Uh, and those are all you know, precursors to this, which is not simply biofeedback, it's neurofeedback. Yeah. And as a neuroscientist, I mean, there's a deep connection between the brain and the body and slowing your body or changing your body changes your brain. Um, but in many ways, it is the thoughts that you have in your head that begin the cascade from brain to body. Yes. So we have a stressful thought or an engaging thought, and then it's that thought that causes the autonomic arousal. It causes our heart to, to increase our, you know, for us to perspire, our veins to constrict and increase our blood pressure, et cetera. So mm. as a neuroscientist, my real focus was helping us intervene at the top level and, and gain mastery and control and engagement and curiosity about our thoughts to then change our downstream physiological experience and experience of the world. Yes. But both are totally valid and you can drive in either direction. Yes. So there's a happy birthday going on. Yeah, I hear a doggy back there. It's one of our team members' birthdays. Awesome. Well, these are what, you know, it's good to have these on the podcast because they're, they're real. <laughs> yeah, it's totally. I'm looking at the little window from this room and there's sparklers going and streamers at his desk. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So we're all, we're getting towards the end here, and uh, um. So like looking forward, can you speak a little bit to like your grand vision for Muse? What what do you see as the future of brain sensing technology? And for you, what would be like the ultimate success? And and do you have besides this even existing being? I think like a big, hairy, audacious goal. Do you have any other further really outrageous goals for this technology? Like, can you like take us out to the outer limits of your vision? Sure. 
And this vision is not just mine. You know, I, I work in a team of amazing individuals yeah. and we all build it. Some of it's mine. Some of it comes in through the ether. Some of it comes in from team members. Mm. So I, I can't have ownership for it. But mm -hmm. I also don't want to make anybody else responsible for the outcomes of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work there. Yeah. Um, so there's lots of different pieces to it. One is improving the world through meditation. So when I see the problems that we have in our world today, and I'm sure most people listening would be on board with this, all of the vast majority of the issues, possibly all the issues that we have are driven by fear, scarcity thinking, anxiety, the need to protect. And when as a society, we can start to dissolve fear, scarcity, thinking, defensiveness, et cetera, we can all exist in really beautiful, wonderful, and harmonious ways. Yeah. So there's an overall social goal of, you know, reducing our degree, reducing our war, reducing the the negative drivers that cause us to interact in ways that we don't need to, but we're driven by these internal systems that aren't obvious, that aren't visible, and that we don't have tools to dialogue and engage with. And when you use amazing technologies like meditation, you can dissolve those and you can start to interact in, in much more pleasant, much more beautiful, much more human ways. Mm. Um, this can happen with and without technology. I'm a massive proponent of both and probably more of a proponent of it happening without technology. However, sometimes it's hard to do. Sometimes we need a hand. Sometimes we, we don't know what to do. And technology is a great tool and enabler in many cases to get us on that road. Yeah. Um, technology is not the be all and end all. So, you know, when I think about what is the grand vision for brain sensing technology, it's actually not a vision for brain sensing technology. It's what it potentially enables us as humans to do mm. that, you know, we can become more aware of our internal state. Ultimately we can become aware and we can use technology tools that will get us to be aware of our emotional state. Technology will improve so that it can s help support our human interactions. Like right now we're in this very awkward phase of technology where we use technology, but it's often at odds with us. You know, right. we feel, feel pulled away and distracted by our devices. We feel often that we're at the mercy of them. And I think that that's a midpoint or maybe even an early point in technological development. And if we are going to use technology as a tool, which seems to be what we're doing, um, and technology has, you know, enabled our lives in lots of phenomenal ways, we need to improve our technologies so that they have a greater understanding of us so that they can get out of the way, so that we're not focused on and obsessed with and spending time with the technology. But the technology is something that, because it understands ourselves and our needs and interactions, can subtly support us in the background mm. and ideally engage our and uh, expand our range of choice and opportunities rather than being something that is deterministic mm. and limits us. I mean, one of the ways I'm often asked, like, oh, you know, the stimulation technologies on the market, brain stimulation is so cool, you know, would you consider going there? And, and for me, it's actually fundamentally important that this technology is passive. It's just reading, it's reflecting an aspect of you back so that you can then reflect on it. Mm. Um, and hopefully in doing so, expands your range of choice, yeah. expands your range of knowledge so that you can take your own next steps rather than doing something to you or confining you or defining you through it. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And how, so my, yeah, go ahead. My grand vision to sum it up is technology that gets out of the way so that it can enhance, expand, and support our human experience so that we can become kinder, gentler, more engaged, more connected, more human, more loving individuals. Beautiful. And and what what would you, like for you lately, what would you see as some of the most promising 
signs that we are on the way towards realizing that. And this can be very much related to Muse. I mean, I think specifically that's, that's what I'm interested in. So the tool that we've built gets added in some ways. Yeah, of course, misses the mark in others is, and has its own journey and development to grow on to, to really get it there. In brain sensing overall, we're also looking at disease states and how we can use um, tools like neurofeedback to help people potentially understand or manage disease in ways that don't require pharmaceutical intervention potentially. You know, this is all just early, early stage potential. Yeah. I also look at, you know, the development of sensor technology overall and how its ability to understand you makes technology better. Like you think about the fact that we started with clunky computers that were on our desk that didn't get us and were hard to use and took a long time and were yeah. frustrating and did very things. Yeah. We now have phones in our pocket, which has pluses and minuses. It's there's a lot of stuff that doesn't work on it, but some of the things really do. For example, when you hold your phone up to your face, your smartphone, the screen automatically turns off so you don't accidentally dial with your cheek. <laughs> that is such a tiny, tiny, simple example yeah. of how, you know, better sensor technology and improved application of technology makes a device that is just seamlessly and quietly easier to use. Yeah. So you're not, you know, frustrated by dialing with your cheek. You're not pulled away from it. You're not engaged in a, you know, a frustrating process with it. It works so that you can call your mom and talk to her and not be interrupted. Yeah. It knows when you're conducting a podcast interview and doesn't convey the texts when you're in the middle of it. <laughs> so we've had uh, hackers at various hackathons use Muse to try to build similar things, an interface that knows when you're focused and as a result doesn't you know pull up your notifications in your email or doesn't let nice. you open Facebook. That is cool. How can people learn about Muse? Like if someone's interested after hearing this interview in getting Muse, what are the next steps? And I know we, we're going to include a link here in the show notes and you've been kind enough to offer us a special rate to listeners of the podcast. But, but yeah, tell us, tell us a little bit more. Sure. Well, if you're curious at all about Muse, you can always follow the link that you'll give Morgan or go to choosemuse.com and there's lots of information there. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram at choosemuse. I'm Ariel underscore Garten. And then you can always reach out to the team. Uh, there's lots of information out there and we're, we're happy to engage. And then we have lots of also professionals who use the tools. So you might find that you know, your psychiatrist or your chiropractor or your psychotherapist or your life coach, actually, we have now many, many, many of them that have muses in their office. Mm. And so it's something that they use with their clients to bring meditation into a practice. Uh, we have hospital systems that are starting to adopt it. So you, you may actually run into this technology, you know, in your daily life or in the places where you go to engage in the process of becoming curious about a better you. Awesome. Or about a different aspects of you. Yeah. I, I have difficulty every time I use the word better or progress or improvement because a big part of it is just appreciating who and where you are. And yeah. then if you so choose, you know, take it in a direction. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Ariel, it has been such a pleasure and I'm so glad that my audience is getting to learn about this, to learn about you and the vision and the inspiration, not just your own, but the entire team behind Muse and Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity to share and wonderful questions. This was great. Awesome. 
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Ariel Garden. If you want to learn more about Muse and Ariel's work, I've included a bunch of links over in the show notes. You can also pick up the $50 discount there. Just head on over to aboutmeditation.com forward slash podcast and look for episode 53. And while you're there, if you haven't already, don't miss our free guided meditations and three-part seminar called Meditation for Life. Those are some free, awesome, great resources on our website. Be sure to check those out over at aboutmeditation.com. That's aboutmeditation.com. And if you've enjoyed the show, I've actually got another offer for you. Please consider leaving me a rating and a review over on iTunes. And you can do that at aboutmeditation.com forward slash iTunes. But if you are the next person to leave us an iTunes review. And if you use the words guided meditation in your review, I will personally make you a custom guided meditation. So that's it. Let's wrap it up with a quote. And this one is from the famous Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. And he says, Walk as if you are kissing the earth with your feet. Walk as if you are kissing the earth with your feet. Mm -hmm.